A five-day march in Palm Beach County is bringing awareness to the mistreatment of farm workers. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. More than 100 people are taking part in a 50-mile march from Pahokee to Palm Beach. We examine why organizers are pressuring retail giants to join a human rights program. Next, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is still creating ripple effects throughout the banking system. We explore what impact the historic failure has had in South Florida. Finally, a man in Broward County who served more than 30 years of a 400-year prison sentence is freed after being exonerated for robbery. A Broward state attorney provides insight into the case. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. From the agricultural community of Pahokee to the, we- to the wealthy Palm Beach, human rights advocates are walking nearly 50 miles to bring awareness to unfair labor. Here's a clip from the march. Are we ready to march? Farm workers and supporters from across the state this week embarked on a five-day march to bring attention to the mistreatment of workers in the field and to push for labor reforms. They are demanding retail giants such as Kroger, Publix, and Wendy's to join the Fair Food Program. It's a human rights initiative that began in 2010. More than 100 people are taking part in a march organized by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Joining us to discuss the five-day march and its causes is Eileen Kelly. She's a reporter for uh, WGCU, Southwest Florida's NPR member station. Thanks for joining us, Eileen. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, your interest in this story. Absolutely. Uh, Let's get into the scene a little bit. Pahokee is in the western part of Palm Beach County near Belle Glade. Why was this the starting point of the march and why is it ending in Palm Beach? Uh, It was the starting point because um, just a few years ago, well, there's this old inn, just like imagine like a two, three story inn, very old, um, kind of iron, intricate iron work around it. And um, outside the parking lot is this fence and then you see this barbed wire and it seems very strange um to when i first pulled up there that was when i first was before the farm workers even started gathering and i learned that that was the place where people were were, where workers were being basically held captive um they had come over on a h2 on on a special visa an h2a visa allowing them to come and into the agricultural community and pick food and then move on to another one and another one throughout the throughout the country. But when they got here, their passports were stolen and they were held um, at gunpoint in the fields. Um, you know, the passports were stolen so that they couldn't escape and then they wouldn't be able to get back home, that kind of thing, have, or have issues getting anywhere. Um, and and the, you know, the Coalition for Mockley Workers kind of honed in on this saying, you know, this is one of the, this growing organization, this um, was not part of uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers Fair Food Program. And if it was, then they would be able, they, this never would have happened. Right, right. Um, and, and just to clarify for the audience, uh, Immokalee, Immokalee is an agricultural community, one and a half hour 
west of Pahokee. Um, and yes. it was essentially known for its bad farming reputation. Um, um, yes, it, it, actually, the federal government has called it modern day slavery. It has been for years, decades, actually. Edward Armaro did a piece in the 60s called Harvest of Shame, and it, it focused on Immokalee. Then decades later, there was another big expose called Decade of Shame. And it really wasn't until it, we're talking in the 2000s when people really started to take notice. And in 1993, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers formed. And it was these were the, you know, the people who that pick our food. And they were trying to draw attention to the fact that they were making um, basically a penny per pound um, for each tomato that they picked. And, you know, they were doing hunger strikes and all that. And I was a I had started my career over there as a newspaper reporter, and I had been covering immigration issues, but in the town of Bonita Springs, which is north of there. And it was similar things like awful housing, awful pay. And I, so I remember the creation of this group. And then now when I came back over uh, in late September to start at WGCU, I've I've been reading about, you know, what the coalition has done. And it's just it's astounding their their growth. Right. I mean, they were they were recognized at, by the Harvard Business Review and, and, as one and of Eileen, the most important. I, mm -hmm. b before we stay on that historical context part of it, uh, let, let, let's stick to the, the recent protests. Uh, supporters are essentially <laughs> urging companies to essentially sign a labor rights agreement with the Fair Food Program. How does the FFP initiative help farm workers? What what's what what protections okay. are workers seeking? Yeah. Okay. So, so the FFP is part of the coalition of workers. It's an offshoot. And so what it essentially does is it's, it's a, it's a contract that, that like the farmers will go to Publix or Wendy's. It, the first one was Taco Bell. And so they would approach them and say, listen, you purchase so many tomatoes from Florida. We want, we want to know who you're purchasing them from. And we want to go and make a deal between the growers and you that, that you will allow the, a third party to come in and monitor the the work conditions. Um, they also want to be allowed to go there, to go to the, the actual farms, pass out literature, show videos. Um, they demand water stations, they demand breaks, they demand shade, all of these things that were never required before. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, this oversight committee, there's a 24 hour hotline to call. Um, this third party will go in and interview at least 50% of the workforce um, right. anonymously to try and get an idea of, you know, is our people, are women still being raped? Are, you know, are, are people being fed? Are they being held at gunpoint? Because with prior to this, workers weren't, they didn't tend to speak up because they, they didn't want to get deported. Hmm. And so these are the specific type of protections that they're seeking. Uh, yes. Where are the participants of the march at this point? Are, are they close uh, to the finish uh, line? Uh, they are getting there in about two hours. They will be at um, a Publix in, in West Palm Beach. They were in Loxahatchee yesterday and they had stopped at two different Wendy's. Wendy's is one of the holdouts, the only holdouts of the fast food giants. And um, today they are going to a public supermarket on Southern Avenue. Um, and they'll be there at 3.30 for about a half hour. And then they're going to march over... Um, the Royal Palm Bridge at about 5.30. And then tomorrow is kind of the big finale. And that starts at 10.30 in the morning at the foot of that bridge where uh, Lois Frankel is going to be speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie Kennedy, a human rights lawyer, will be there. Um, a big rapper from Mexico is going to be there. And they're expecting about 500 people. Then in mass, these 
500 current, former farm workers, um, family members, allies, religious leaders, they are then going to march through Palm Beach. So quite a few um, people there. And, yeah. and just to clarify, we have from your reporting, McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, Trader Joe's were some of the major corporations that joined the program and uh, Wendy's uh, yes. seemed to be the holdout. So uh, Wendy's, yeah, Wendy's, Publix yeah. and um, Kroger. And I, I did hear from Publix oh, today. And I, I think they, we're, we're running out of time. I'm sorry. Eileen oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Kelly is a reporter for WGCU, Southwest Florida's NPR member station. Eileen, thank you so much for your reporting. Again, thank you for your interest. Absolutely. Still to come, after spending nearly 35 years in prison under a wrongful conviction, a Florida man walks free. You're listening to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. 57-year-old Sidney Holmes was exonerated from prison on Monday after spending nearly 35 years there under a wrongful conviction in connection to a 1988 armed robbery in Broward County. Holmes was serving a 400-year prison sentence. Yes, you heard that correctly, 400 years. He was 23 when he was arrested. In 2019, Holmes reached out to the Innocence Project of Florida, a nonprofit organization that helps innocent prisoners get out of the system. The organization took on this case and, through their review, found that there was enough evidence to prove his innocence. After two and a half year investigation with the Broward State Attorney's Office, Circuit Judge Edward Edward Merrigan ordered the authorization to let Holmes out of prison. Joining us to discuss this case is Howard's or Broward State Attorney uh, Harold Pryor. Harold, how are you? Fine. How are you doing, Wilkin? All is well, thank you. Now, Harold, um, your the, the Broward State Attorney's Office was involved in the investigation into Holmes's case. What was Holmes's What was Holmes accused of, and how were lawyers? able to prove his innocence well holmes was charged with armed robbery in 1988 um it was alleged on june 19th of 1988 that two people outside of a convenience store which was a one-stop store in fort lauderdale committed an armed robbery uh mr holmes alleged involvement with that was uh, that of a getaway driver um it was never alleged that he was one of the uh, assailants that had the armed um the weapon or tried to commit the armed robbery. And so and so he was arrested sometime in October of 1988 after that uh, alleged armed robbery. And so he was arrested, but what actually led to his conviction in the first place? Well, he became a suspect because of a precarious eyewitness identification. Um, that was the principal evidence that was used against him at trial. Um, and also him owning a commonly owned and popular vehicle of the 1980s, which was a brown Oldsmobile. And, and so people essentially like pointed at him out in the lineup and said, you are the, the suspect, essentially. That is correct. It was all based on um, identification. And also another issue with it was that it was based on a civilian investigation. It was launched by the brother of actually one of the victims of the alleged armed robbery. And so this caused Holmes to become one of the only suspects because um, we never or the circuit was never really able to find the other two participants in the alleged robbery. 
And so based on similarities between his extremely common Oldsmobile and the car used by the robbers, um, it pretty much overlooked the differences between the two cars. And um, it was likely his incarceration and him being picked for the alleged crime was likely due to the misidentification of the Oldsmobile involved in the actual robbery. Wow. Now, is that I mean, I recall seeing that type of method in movies. <laughs> is that method still used today where you can just sort of point out uh, a potential suspect on a lineup? No. And, and, and that's a great question. I, I think primarily that was the reason and one of our justifications as an office in our CRU unit um, as to why we felt um, that exoneration was warranted in this situation. Uh, many of the practices used by law enforcement at that time in the 1980s um, are pretty much outdated uh, practices that aren't used uh, um, really anymore in criminal investigations. And we felt based on that information, based on that ID, uh, we wouldn't have uh, presented charges based on uh, those practices that were utilized in the 1980s. Right. Now, um, your office was involved in this case for two and a half years. Um, in total, at least for the family, it took 35 years, decades of challenges by his family for folks who aren't aware of how the justice system works how can it take that long to prove someone's innocence when the evidence is essentially available well it, it could be a plethora of many things um and you know i can't speak for what happened during the the, the time when that case went to trial it could be for many reasons um it could be uh, due to um, the, the effectiveness of counsel um, also, it could be due to the willingness of law enforcement or prosecution to hear out uh, Mr. Holmes' uh, defenses or, or, or some of the things that he wanted to present in his defense. It, it, a plethora of many things that, you know, I, I really don't know and I can't speculate. Um, but what I can say and what the people can take solace in knowing that this man is no longer going to be in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And thank God that we have a CRU unit, a conviction review unit uh, that took the time um, to go through his case and to do the right thing, or at least begin the process of righting a wrong. Right, right. Stay with me. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Broward State Attorney Harold Pryor about why a man walked free after spending nearly 35 years in prison. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Harold, for context, the United States is just over 245 years old. What's the difference between sending someone to prison for life versus putting an actual number like 400 years behind a sentence? Is what, what What's the logic behind that? Well, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's mind blowing. It, it, it shocks the conscience. When it first came across my desk and I saw 400 years, I was shocked. Right. Um, just amazed at how could someone be sentenced for 400 years, uh, let alone for this particular crime and the fact that he was a, a getaway driver. Um, and actually, the fact that the other two involved suspects in this particular crime or alleged crime, we were never able to locate them. Um, but I, one thing I can kind of point you to is really to October 1st, 1995. Um, for crimes committed on or after that date, um, people who have been incarcerated, inmates, they're required to serve 85% of their sentence, the sentence that was imposed. And so... Um, Normally, if you were to sentence someone for life or you were so, well, not life, but let's say if you were sentenced someone for 30 years imprisonment, uh, they would have to serve 85 percent of that 
um, term before they're released. Before that, um, if you sentence someone to 30 years or even if you sentence someone to life, they were eligible for parole and they could have been out of prison in a matter of 10, 15, maybe 20 to 25 years. And so what I've been led to believe in my understanding from people who've been practicing much longer than me, right, um, that was their justification back then as to why they would impose such harsh um, or, or elongated sentences for someone um, who may have been sentenced after a jury trial um, for 400 years. So wow. the, the motivation as to why they did 400 years was because to ensure that this man, that Mr. Holmes, would not see the light of day outside of a Florida state prison. And so that was the logic, if it is logical, <laughs> that was the logic of why that sentence was imposed back then. Um, but I, I mean, it should be noted that I think the initial offer was 800 years in prison. 800 and the judge, years. Yeah. And the judge sentenced Mr. Holmes for 400 years. Um, so that shows you um, just how shocking um, and how, um, how, you know, I, you know, my heart goes out to Mr. Holmes right. that he had to go through that ordeal. I mean, I could only imagine sitting there and a 400 year sentence so, being so, imposed upon so, you for something so, you didn't do. So the 800 years. So it gave him lenience by giving him half, which was 400. Uh, Harold, uh, right. let's, let's talk about the bigger picture here. Uh, a 2022 yeah. report from the National Registry of Exonerations went through 3,200 exonerations in the last 30 years. And it showed widespread disparities in the criminal legal system that disproportionately affect black people who represent 13 percent of the U.S. population, but made up 53 percent of exonerations, 53%. What does this hard data say about the criminal legal system? Well, as uh, you know, I'm, I'm a hip hop fan. And as Jay-Z once said, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Um, we have to look at the numbers. And, and, and I'll tell you this much, uh, you can't be the chief prosecuting officer of any jurisdiction. You can't be a chief of police. You can't be a sheriff in any jurisdiction if you don't fundamentally understand and believe that we have a criminal justice system that has been traditionally stacked against people of color and poor folk. And so it's important for us to have people in office that understand that, have decision makers um, and stakeholders that make these important decisions at the helm that understand the gross inequities of, of the system. And so, look, I, I'll tell you this, I, I, I can't speak for what happened in 1989. I can't speak for anything that's happened before 2020, all I can do is speak about now. And my goal is to ensure that we have a criminal justice system that's fair and equitable for all people. And uh, this is a start. Look, we're not perfect. Um, the criminal justice system is not perfect. Broward State Attorney's Office isn't perfect. But I think people can take solace in knowing that you have someone at the helm that understands that these numbers that you pointed out, um, that understands the gross inequities in the system, and that really wants to fix that and make it more equitable for all people. Right. And let's stick on the topic of equity. Um, as recently as three years ago, the University of Florida ended force-free prison labor around their agricultural research sites across the state amid public pressure from students. And advocates of criminal justice reform, reform have always questioned long prison sentences and the existence of private, uh, private prisons. And WLRN did a report on the influence of private prisons um, that can have on elected officials. As the Broward State Attorney, have you had to address any of these particular concerns? No, um, you know, honestly, you know, I'm not in the Department of Corrections realm. Um, but I, I will tell you this, you know, I, I do understand it goes back to my earlier point. Um, we have a system 
um, that's in place, a criminal justice system that play, that's in place. And we're all inextricably intertwined, right? Um, in the sense that what I do can affect what happens in the prison system. And so my goal is to be fair and equitable through every stage of the prosecutorial process, understanding that anything that I do in my role plays a role in what happens in the criminal justice system. And so uh, the more that I can do in my realm to find solutions to keep people out of prison by way of creating diversion programs, um, by way of having mental health diversion programs, by having drug court, having drug diversion programs, where we give people second chances to keep them out of the system. We make our community safer. So we won't need to put anyone in prison because if you're a first time offender and you feel that you have a lack of economic opportunity where you can join the state attorney office's economic empowerment today diversion program, where we help you get a job skill, hmm. we help you find a job, you become a productive citizen of society and the recidivism rate goes down. Therefore, we won't need to put someone in prison. Therefore, there's no need for more prison beds or more prisons. And so I think what I do has a direct effect with all of that. So I can't talk about Department of Corrections. I don't know about any of that, to be quite frank. All I can tell you is that I'm working every day to create ways to keep people out of the system by enhancing public safety. Right. We are, by nature, by nature, safer as a community when we address right. root causes of issues and give people second chances. Harold Pryor is the Broward State Attorney. Harold, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Wilkin. Have a good one. You too. Still to come, we examine the ripple effects surrounding the recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank. You're listening to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation support. You can make your donation by supporting programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last week created ripple effects throughout the American banking and financial sector. It's the largest bank failure in more than a decade and the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Two other institutions, Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank, also failed. And within a matter of days, the Federal Reserve, the Department of the Treasury, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, announced that it was shoring up the banking system. Silicon Valley Bank was a mid-sized regional bank that helped the tech industry grow. So what sort of impact could it have in Miami for the tech and non-tech businesses? Joining us to navigate the chaos is David Lyons, business reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and Drew Lemsky, editor-in-chief of the South Florida Business and Wealth. David and Drew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> David, let's let's start with your reporting. Um, this is absolutely wild. Uh, many people remember what happened during the 2008 financial crisis when high-risk subprime mortgage loans crippled the financial market. How did the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank happen? Well, this is uh, not a 2008 episode. It, it's not about uh, banks. Uh, of floating real estate loans to people who never should have uh, received them. Um, and the contagion factor has, uh, even though uh, the financial markets are, are definitely rattled by this, 
um, you know, not only uh, Silicon Valley uh, went down, but also a bank in New York State called Signature Bank, which uh, focused, uh, it's a commercial bank that also served the uh, crypto industry. Um, and then there's another San Francisco bank uh, called uh, First Republic that's on shaky ground, but it just received a major infusion of capital from 11 uh, major banks uh, from around the country to shore up its situation. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is that uh, uh, Sil <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank, which, as you mentioned, um, uh, serves uh, the uh, technology industry, um, had a mismatch of uh, de deposits versus assets uh, that was essentially caused by what many commentators and observers believe is a uh, mismanagement of its so-called uh, interest rate uh, uh, portfolio. It had a lot of bonds uh, that were bought at, uh, uh, at low at low interest rates, uh, and then as the Federal Reserve moved to uh, attack uh, uh, inflation, interest rates went up, and bonds and interest rates uh, moved inversely against each other. So as the interest rates went up, the uh, bond prices went down, and uh, SVB was suddenly sitting there with uh, a portfolio that showed nearly a $2 billion loss. Hmm. And so when, when word of that got out, uh, largely through social media, um, uh, and it was also during the course uh, of a time when Goldman Sachs was uh, looking to help uh, do a rescue. Um, uh, depositors uh, fled, and they moved a lot of their money into bigger banks, and uh, you know, leaving uh, SVB uh, in a very precarious uh, position. Right, uh, and and, so and, let's, and before you go forward, let let's so just to clarify here, um, it, it's not a 2008 situation. Very different. No, it's not. Uh, and a lot of people. Exactly. A lot of people are emphasizing that. This is not a, a housing collapse. Right. Which is why I wanted to start off that way so we can make sure we tackle that particular uh, refrain that I've seen online. Um, and also um, just the way the inner workings of, of banking, a, a depositor puts their money into a, a banking account and then that bank then uh, invests in different securities. Um, and so this is a mismanagement situation, not a scam is what I've also seen online. Um, should bank customers in South Florida in particular worry about their own deposits? Any reports of people making a run on their, on their banks locally? Well, people have uh, been on the phone with their bankers. There's no question about that. I've spoken with uh, a handful of uh, bankers uh, starting this past Monday, and uh, one in particular up here in Fort Lauderdale uh, started on the phone at 4 a.m. in the morning, uh, you know, just to uh, essentially calm the nerves of clients. And the answer is no. I, I, just about everyone who has uh, been out there uh, discussing uh, the state of banking in, in Florida is that uh, deposits are safe. There are no institutions uh, that are in dire straits. Mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley, of course, did open uh, a branch on Brick Avenue in Miami back in 2021 uh, to serve technology clients. Uh, but uh, after the FDIC moved in, um, uh, Silicon Valley, which is now known as Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, mm -hmm. uh, because under the jurisdiction of the FDIC, uh, reopened for business on Monday. Okay. And, and and I think this is a good time to segue uh, uh, with that discussion of tech companies here in Miami. Uh, Drew Limsky, um, how does this niche bank affect the tech industry as a whole or other businesses here in South Florida area, specifically in Miami, where a lot of tech companies have made their home? Let me just jump back to pick up on what David said, and then I'll go on to your sure, question. Sure, sure. Like, imagine you're, you're an individual investor and you bought some CDs, $10,000 worth of CDs, and they're 18-month CDs, but then you decide you're not going to hold them to maturity. 
and you sell them after three months when you're supposed to hold on to them for 18 months. Your financial advisor, your family, people who you trust are wondering what is going on with your finances. On a macro level, that's what happened with SVB. It, it was a contagion, as David said, through social media. And when people start hearing this, there was a loss of confidence and therefore a run on the bank. It was a very particular situation made through bad investments, treasury notes and bonds. Now, when we move into Miami, which is increasingly a tech epicenter, um, SVB didn't have a big presence here. However, and again, it won't probably won't be affected as much as other areas of the country. We just did an interview with uh, Mason Williams, uh, chief investment officer of Coral Gables Trust. There will, however, be a chilling effect. There probably already was a chilling effect after what happened to FTX. There was going to be a big sign on a huge tower in downtown Miami broadcasting FTX's success and how it was representative of this new tech center. Well, now that's gone. It's called Miami-Dade Arena. Um, I think it, it will be a tougher environment for startups because banks will be less likely, less um, generous in terms of extending credit to some of these startups that we've heard so much about. And the fact that a lot of these startups were bringing in a different class of educated um, expertise to the area and high paying jobs, we're gonna, I mean, it's all a matter of degree. We're gonna see how long this chilling effect will last and how deep it is. Yeah, it's we, a little bit too, too early to say, but it is already having an impact right. we, we, in we, a negative we, sense. We, we talk about that fear spreading quite rapidly. Um, uh, and, and we're now seeing bigger institutions um, filling the bulk of the weight of the fear um, that's in the air. Um, and there's a huge microscope on everyone's uh, balance sheet. Uh, what issues are Credit Suisse dealing with, which is a larger bank institution that it, that is a, a Swiss bank that isn't located here in the U.S.? Uh, and how does that particular situation differ from the bank failures in the U.S.? It's a, it's a huge bank. I'll let, I'll let David, you want to... Well, I was going to say that it's a very murky situation across the pond because, uh, I mean, the Swiss uh, Credit Suisse essentially, uh, you know, it's one of the biggest banks, if not the biggest bank in, in Europe with a worldwide reach. And um, they issued a, a financial report that said that they had uh, a material weakness in their in their financial reporting, uh, which is enough to send uh, you know ripples uh, all over the continent, and it did. Uh, to the extent that there was uh, a run uh, on Credit Suisse as well. So the Swiss National Bank uh, served up a credit facility or they offered to, uh, made about $53 billion uh, for Credit Suisse to, mm. to borrow. And, and, uh, and, and do we know how secure the investments are of banks who are lending to tech businesses here? How secure, uh, in, in terms of- um, In terms of lending, are, are banks here in, in, in good shape, essentially. Yes, they are in good shape. I, I can. Uh, I've been told that there aren't that many banks in in, in the state of Florida that have been underwriting uh, loans to technology companies. I mean, it's uh, these technology companies have principally been funded by you know, private equity companies, uh, private investors who have come in from uh, other places, and right. uh, um, so you're you're not going to see your local community bank. Uh, uh, floating large loans to technology startups. That's that. That's not the way it's worked uh, during this tech boom in the Miami area. Um, is this a house of cards situation? Do you expect more uh, probing of certain balance sheets from from different mid-sized banks and, and, and larger banks? Let me grab this one. When we talk about what happened with First Republic, 
it is or was the 18th largest bank in the country. So it was deemed too big to fail when the government stepped in and brokered the deal. So they would have an infusion of $50 billion from 11 different banks, the top banks that each put in $5 billion include Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, and, and Wells Fargo. So the Fed did everything, the, the government and the Fed are doing everything they can to stop to arrest this contagion. Um, with SVB, it happened over the weekend um, uh, because the Asian markets were going to open on a Monday, that closure was affected over the weekend. So I think the government is doing everything that they can possibly do. There are bank failures that occur every year that we never hear about it, we should note. Yeah, and, and that's a great clarification uh, uh, to mention to our listeners. Uh, David Lyons is the business reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and Drew Lemsky is the editor-in-chief for South Florida Business and Wealth. Thank you both for sharing your expertise. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having us. <clears throat> Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Finally, on the roundup, Old Miami and WLRN are partnering to transform a downtown Miami billboard directly across the street from the Heat Arena arena into a canvas for poetry. The rules for Zip Ode are simple. Use your five-digit zip code to write a five-line poem. Each digit of your zip code determines how many words per line. Like this, my zip code is 33463 and I wrote a poem. It goes, I love you under the condition that you love yourself unconditionally. Share the sun within you, brighten our days. Submit yours by March 22nd at WLRN.org slash zip odes. The winner's poem will be displayed on National Poetry Month. And that will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway with help from Helen Acevedo and Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and shows technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. Richard Ives answers the phones. And I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.